to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to leadership, crisis management, pandemics, business continuity, resilience, anything that can help you, your organization, organization, whoops, or your community plan for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fulick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Alternatively, you can find me at alexfulick.com. Longtime listeners and viewers, you will know that I love to read for entertainment purposes and education purposes. And I came across uh, a book recently And uh, considering the great resignation and considering some of the challenges that we've all had, including leadership, I thought this would be a great topic to talk about. I'd like to welcome to the show the author of The Broken CEO, How to Be the Leader You Always Wanted to Be. Welcome to the show, Chris Pierce. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. I, I, I noticed you've uh, you've got a few post-it notes. Just a few. <laughs> Just a few, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I tend to have a lot of those little post-it notes uh, in books. Uh, I was getting emails from people, you know, stop bending pages, you know. Some, I, I, I don't know what they, they call people that are in love with books type things, but um, I know there's a name. Bibliophiles. What is a bibliophile. Bibliophile. Yeah. yeah, I was getting a couple of emails, stop bending pages. Um, so I thought, okay, fine, you know, I'll put all these things in there. Um, it actually helps too, because then I know where on the page to look for an idea later on when I'm thinking about something. But, um, but congratulations on the book. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, did, I did find uh, when I read it that you don't have to be a CEO to read this book. Uh, that's what I got out of it, because there were some bits in here going, you know, that applies to other people I know. And this, this applies to you know, myself and uh, other things, not just somebody, you know, at the top of the uh, corporate chain, so to speak. So my first question to you is going to be, how do you define a leader? Well, actually, no, let, let, let's, let's, let's take a step back. Tell us a little bit about you. What do you do and how you got into to what you do that brought the book around? Right. Well, it was quite a long journey, actually. I started life as an engineer and a a, a practicing research and development engineer in digital electronics and software. Um, And I, like many engineers, I got seduced by the the, the glamour of sales and marketing, (laughs) Uh, particularly that the the markets we we were selling into because they were global. So it gave me a chance to travel and support marketing and sales efforts abroad. And that got me into a, a series of management positions where I was having to, uh, to, to lead not just people that were reporting to me, but also the, the, the international distribution networks that we'd set up to, um, uh, to, to get these products out into the market and then support them afterwards. So there was leadership um, leadership when when you're you're trying to get people to do things um, when they work for you it's a different dynamic to when they have their own business and they're selling your product but it's still leadership um, I think and and um, I think for me leadership is and I'm 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 pinching this definition from other people it's certainly not unique but it's about getting people to do what they didn't necessarily think they could do. You know, it's getting that potential out of people that they don't necessarily see in themselves and surprise themselves as a result. And I I found that a lot easier to do with my 
my team, my immediate team, than the uh, some of the agents that were quote working for me, um, because they one has a much closer relationship with them, obviously. But I think it's a, it's about getting people to go beyond some of the limits that we all impose on ourselves that other people can see and that we can't. I, I remember being told that a leader, uh, for someone to, to be a leader or identified as a leader, they have to have followers. So does that mean that um, for a leader, they have to have people who subscribe to the same thinking? Um, I think there has to be some overlap in approach and understanding. Otherwise, you've got nothing to, to really engage with. Um, but taking it at, at its, at its, you know, taking this definition to its limit, um, you don't need any followers at all because, and I think I say this in the book, at the limit, we've all got a life to lead. You know, it, it's embedded in the language. You talk about people leading a good life. That's the first thing you have to lead is yourself through through this business of life mm-hmm. and um then when you you know as you, as you get a bit older you may have a family if you have a family you will be fulfilling some kind of leadership role in that that family either proactively or not because as you you'll, you'll know if you've got children um, they tend to emulate your behavior over what you tell them to do. So they will, they will look to how you behave rather than, than the instructions that, they, that you give them. Um, and that applies, I think, even to the, to the most uh, senior and powerful people in business. It's the same, it's the same effect. It's one of influence uh, that, that a leader has. Um, so leadership, I think, applies to the full spectrum of, of the individual right up to uh, those that are, are, I was going to say lucky enough. I'm not sure it is luck, actually. I, I, I think it might be a poison chalice for some, but that, that are, particularly today, uh, that are leading very large organizations or even countries. You mentioned life, so I'm, I'm going to jump down our list of uh, things we're going to chat, chat on today um, because you mentioned life and, and, you know, and work and things like that. So um, why... Do you say that work-life balance is a false dichotomy? Oh, right. Well, from a, a purely semantic point of view, um, what the work-life balance ten, tends to suggest that it's either work or life, and that if you are working, you're not living, and if you're living, you're not working. Now, that's patently absurd for a start, mm-hmm. but I think more, more practically speaking, Work should is part of life. And if you're not having as much of a good time at work, if you're not being fulfilled, stimulated, enlivened at work as you are in the rest of your life, then maybe there's, there's a problem. Maybe there's an imbalance that needs putting right. Um, so I don't see any dichotomy between work and life. And some people spend a lot of their lives working and do very little else, and that works for them. Others um, get, you know, get the other balance that there isn't enough work in their lives. Um, but I see them as, as, as one of the same thing, work and life. I mean, to, to live, you have to work. To work, you have to live. I see the real dichotomy as being between work and rest. Mm. And the quality of rest that we get determines the quality of work that we do and vice versa. They're very much intertwined. So I think the focus needs to be on the work-rest balance rather than on work-life. And there's a chapter in the book about this um, uh, that goes into some detail about what exactly rest is and how important it is and how our kind of prosaic understanding of of rest is um, is insufficient to give us what we need. Well, let's let's jump to that because we were going to talk about that. So now that you brought it up, let let's go straight there. What is rest then? Because I think when most people think of rest, um, the first thing that comes into my mind is you know when I climb into bed. Yes, absolutely, and. <laughs> 
I, I'm sure you've lived long enough to have had a night's sleep where you've woken up in a worse state than when you went to went to bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, this has happened to all of us. Um, so sleep is not necessarily synonymous with rest. We tend to think it is. But in, in, in reality, it can be. You know, it can be, can be very, very restful, but not necessarily. And um, the... I think the, the, the aspect of rest that we need more than ever the, these days is emotional and mental rest. Not so much physical rest because, you know, compared to years gone by, centuries gone by, most of us are pretty inactive. You know, even sports people probably do a fraction of the amount of physical labor than um, they, people would, would do just 100 years ago. There's no comparison. Um, but mentally and, and emotionally, we are very active. Now, does that stop when we go to sleep? Um, not necessarily, because we might have some very, very vivid and emotionally draining dreams that we, we, uh, we engage in. Um, so how do we get that emotional rest? Well, it's not about just physical inactivity. You know, we come home, we have a drink, have a meal, watch some TV, go to bed. That might be relaxation, but it's not rest because our minds are still required and are still being stimulated by these so-called restful or recreational activities. Real rest is about allowing the mental and emotional worlds to come to some, or to slow down at least. And in our general everyday lives, we don't have the opportunity to do that or we don't do it. The only practice that I've come across that enables us to do this to any degree is meditation, mm. because that gives us an opportunity to rest consciously. Sleep at its best is unconscious rest, but conscious rest is another dimension altogether. Now, you know, not everyone's going to meditate. And um, by the way, meditation need not have any kind of spiritual or, or religious um, dimensions to it. Mm -hmm. it. It's a very, very, very simple practice, uh, secular practice. Um, but there are there are other activities you can get engaged in. You know, just just walking in nature is is restful. Um, listening to good music, and I stress the word good, <laughs> um, <laughs> can can have a, a very, very beneficial effect on on one's emotional and, and, and mental world, in, intellectual world, because it allows things just to die down. You move from a, a mode of interpretation and analysis into one of observation. And that observation is inherently relaxing and, and stress-free. Um, so good music, good art, that kind of activity. But if you can, meditation, uh, it, in my experience and those that, uh, the people that I've, I've introduced it to, gives you that, that extra, extra depth of real mental and emotional rest, allowing that, that kind of flywheel of activity to gently calm down. Well, I meditate, so I have been for you know, over a decade now, um, and maybe that's why I'm able to do, get so much done, is I take that time to declutter and just relax. For, for some people, though, um, <clears throat> it, it's difficult to, to how, how do I put this? Let's look at the perspective from someone who lives in something like uh, the middle of a city where you're at home, you're, even if you're trying to meditate, there are so many different distractions that are going on that it's hard to rest. And if you're in a living in the middle of a uh, metropolitan center, you know, walking in nature sometimes isn't an option because the parks are small. You know, even walking down the street, you've got car horns and everything. So, how does someone in that kind of position try to find rest? You know, and different options for them. Okay. Well, um, to, to <laughs> an extreme example, I, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who, who introduced the Beatles to meditation, mm -hmm. to transcendental meditation many years ago. 
And apparently he used to deliberately meditate next to a jazz band in order to, um, to, to give him a bit more challenge. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate that for, <laughs> for, for my clients or indeed myself. Um, but you can, there are things you can do. First of all, you need to dispel the notion that we need to, to meditate for, for you know, 20 minutes or half an hour. Even five minutes, even two minutes is something. And I, I tell my clients, it's better to do two minutes a day than half an hour on a Sunday. You know, mm. it's, the, it's the, the repetitive practice and the interruption of the incessant activity and also the pushing back against the world that is clamoring for our, our input, our attention and our activity. Just the mere fact of resisting that for a couple of minutes every day has an impact. And you can start from that and you can build on it. You can also, um, you, you, can, you can build in other exercises like deliberately reading good literature for a few minutes a day, deliberately listening to, to really uplifting music. Um, there's not much of that around coming out at the moment, by the way, I should add. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you go to, 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 to some of the, the, the great composers, uh, modern and, and classical, you can find some there. But if you can immerse yourself to a small degree even in uplifting input, <laughs> sensory input, uh, that's going to help. So I think the first thing is to dispel the notion that if you haven't got half an hour to do it, it's not worth doing. It absolutely is, even with two minutes a day. Well, I want to take this a step further now because you talk about stress and strain. And I, you know, if we're not meditating or finding ourselves methods to rest, properly rest, then I would assume that, you know, as a leader, a CEO, or even just as myself, uh, I would, you know, I could be increasing my, my stress and not dealing with it. And you talk about stress and strain. Can you describe what those are and the difference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I take the model, but being an engineer, I, I've, I've had have a grounding in physics and stress and the concepts of stress and strain are heavily used in you know, the, you know, the study of materials and how they, they behave under, under stress. Um, and many materials will, um, if, if they're stressed, they will, return to their their original shape up to a point and if they're, they, they're stressed over that point then they will retain some deformation of some sort so think of a paper clip you know if you bet your paper clips a little bit springy you can you can bend it around a bit nothing much will happen but if you take it beyond its its uh, elastic point it will you can permanently uh, deform it mm. now I think this, and, and take, take a, a, another example of a, a piece of spaghetti, a strip of spaghetti. has to be dried spaghetti, not cooked spaghetti, otherwise it doesn't work very well. Um, but if, if you, you can bend a piece of spaghetti so far that it'll break and you can't put it back together again, it's permanently damaged. Um, but within that, that, um, that flex, uh, if you release it, it'll come back to its original point. So stress is the amount of pressure that it's under. Strain is the, the deformation or the, the permanent change that it undergoes as a result of that strain. Now, with human beings, I think there's, there's a little bit of an analogy here that you, you can't take it too far, but there are some similarities. You can take, you can put people under a degree of stress and they will survive. In fact, some people say they will thrive under it. You know, um, if you take that stress to a certain point, things start to go downhill. And I, th I think most of us have experienced that phenomenon where things are just getting a bit too much. And if you're sensitive to it, you realize before it happens that if you keep going down this path, something permanent is going to happen. You know, there, there will be a permanent or a semi-permanent change. You'll, you'll do a little bit of damage. 
you know you, and now hopefully that damage will be fairly superficial where you can you can relieve it by taking a couple of days off and getting back to normal there are other cases where that's not not um, you know uh, that that doesn't happen and in fact there are a couple of instances in the book of people going beyond that point of no return um, so I think that's where stress and strain are useful uh, analogies for the human mind in a sense and you know I think we, we know this more than ever in this day and age with all the mental health uh, issues that are going on, we need to be very, very careful about how much stress we put ourselves under and how much strain that we endure as a result. Um, there are too many cases, and I've met a few, where the individual has, to be brutally honest, they've ignored the warning signs and they've gone beyond that point uh, to, to, their, to their harm. Well, COVID certainly has done that. And I, I think that we, what we've seen over the last two plus years is that um, you know people that uh, are even in positions of CEOs and presidents and things like that, they're struggling as well Yes, right, to, to, to get through all of this. Um, and I think before COVID, a lot of the focus was on the employees. But now, it, 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 as odd as it, may, as, as it may seem, leadership and employees now are experiencing the exact same things. And, yes. and to your point, they, yes. they need to, um, you, you can't just put all these programs in for employees and ignore the leadership now. Uh, absolutely. Um, the, it, I think it's a, always a very dangerous thing to try and um, firewall and separate the the leadership from the employees because the reality is everyone's an employee and also the reality everybody is that everybody has leadership potential yes. and in fact one could argue that if every single employee is not showing some leadership in some sense then they're not really working to potential so I guess it's kind of true based on that, what you just said there is you can be a leader without a hierarchical title and you can have oh, a hierarchical title and not be a leader. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen this so many times where people, oh, well, here's another expression. They take the lead and you want them and they might be the most junior person in the room. But if they're talking, if they're speaking, if they're expressing an opinion, they are taking the lead in that moment. And that's what you want from them. And I, I'm reminded of Steve Jobs' quote, uh, which I, I keep using because it's so good, is that we don't employ good people to tell them what to do. We employ good people so they can tell us what to do. That's why you pay them. And I, th I think it's, it's a travesty when we employ people in order to direct, control, uh, and... and um, essentially pull, pull the strings of, of them um, because you cannot get the best from that resource, that person, if you take that approach. You have to create an environment in which that person can start to express themselves and take the lead. And you need the leader. The leader's responsibility, actually, one of their prime responsibilities is to create an environment in which people can find their full potential. Mm -hmm. So you create that environment and then you, um, I was going to say provoke, that's the wrong word, but you stimulate that process of drawing the best out of them. Yeah, I, I've worked for uh, managers and uh, you know, VPs and whoever, um, and I found the best ones were those that gave me the tools I needed, but let me, uh, you know, do things my way so that I yeah. didn't feel as though I was in a box, you know, and yeah. had to, to follow everything a specific, specific way. Of course, there's guidelines we all have to follow. Yeah. You know, we, you can't break some, you can't be unethical. But I found the best leaders were those that let me do it my way 
because I've got my own thinking, you know, and, and preferences of doing it and still delivering exactly what was required. And you, and then you own it. Yes. And then you become responsible for it. Now, there's, there's an interesting question I ask some of my clients um, before, they, before I work with them. And that is, you know, when you, when you give somebody a job to do, when you delegate something to someone, who's responsible for the outcome? Most of them will say, we both are. Some of them will say, I am. And a very few will say, they are. And in my book, literally in my book, um, I think if you delegate a task, a job, project to someone, that individual then becomes wholly responsible for the job. Um, and the, the mere fact that you are delegating a task should mean that you are also delegating responsibility and accountability to that individual. Uh, it reminds you, me of my pro project management days where when the project succeeded, the team did great. When something went wrong, it was the project manager's fault. Not <laughs> the, you know, <clears throat> because they, yeah. they delegate, you know, they properly or they gave someone a task, but, you know, they, they just didn't do it right. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> look, what we're talking about here is a very old chestnut. You know, there's nothing new about this at all. We've, we've been going on about this for probably uh, since well into the last century. And it's, it's not rocket science. It's just so obvious when you talk about it in these terms. The challenge is not that people don't acknowledge this. It's that when push comes to shove, they don't do it. When push comes to shove, the manager... You know, when, when the chips are down and things are getting tough, the manager is almost incapable of not trying to interfere and intervene and pull some of that responsibility back to themselves. Now, in a crisis situation, sometimes that's necessary. But there are so many instances I can think of where the manager has, through fear intervened, taken over, directed, and generally uh, gone in the way, and disempowered, completely disempowered the individual concerned because they no longer own it. You know, and, and this, this is one of the, the big, this is, this is, you know, how to be the leader you always wanted to be. It's working against that very, very visceral urge to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in and take over someone else's responsibility because things are not quite going the way you, you, um, you envisaged. And then that person isn't learning either. Exactly. That person is then reduced yeah. to the role of a drone yeah. who, um, who if they've got uh, a real ambition and real, um, you know, they're a self-starter. If, they are subject to that often enough, they will leave simply. Yes. Yes. They'll go and find something else. And the organization or the individual manager will attract themselves people that can only operate as a, as a drone, as, mm -hmm. as someone that needs to be told what to do, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it. Yeah. You know, so you will you will change the nature of the, the organization over a period of time. It doesn't happen overnight. And this, this has a, quite an impact on, on any kind of culture change that you, you know, if a, a new leader comes in and wants to shake things up and change things around, it mm -hmm. means that the changes are not just limited to, uh, to the leader, but may, may have to extend to personnel change as well because you will have a, a critical mass of people with a way of working that is not supportive of true delegation. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Chris Pierce, the author of The Broken CEO, CEO How to Be the Leader You Always Wanted to Be. And we will be right back.
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Chris Pierce, the author of The Broken CEO, How to Be the Leader You Always Wanted to Be. And Chris, great first segment. There are lots and lots of uh, good information. Uh, You talk about something else in your book that kind of caught my attention, um, and that was uh, how a leader can increase their influence. Now, naturally, I think people think if you are a CEO or a president or somebody else on the C-suite, you automatically have influence. But you describe that a little bit differently in your book. Yeah, I mean, you you certainly have power on paper, uh, but influence is something else. And I'll I'll tell you a little anecdote about um, a a coach who was seeing the the CEO client and the CEO was lamenting that they had exactly what we're talking about, no influence and that people didn't seem to listen to them, take much notice, um, and they, they, they lacked the clout that they wanted in the organization. And the, uh, the coach said, well, I'm, I'm very sorry, time's up now. Um, here's the invoice. Um, I'll see you in, uh, next week or the fortnight. Um, oh, and by the way, there's one thing I want you to do. Um, go and buy a copy of Time magazine and carry it around with you wherever you go. And off they go. And they, they meet again in the fortnight. And the coach says, good to see you. How's it gone? How are you? And uh, the CEO says, well, nothing's changed. It's just the same. I have this feeling of, 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 of lack of authority, lack of influence. Um, and I just don't know where I'm going with it. And at this point, the coach deliberately, as coaches do, just shut up and didn't say anything. 
So there was this long pregnant pause. And eventually the CEO says, but there is one strange thing, which I don't understand. Everybody seems to be reading time now. <laughs> so, you know, in other words, it's not what you say, it's what you do, which I think we, we talked about before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of CEOs, senior people, you know, it's not just CEOs, directors, um, senior managers and organizations, what they fail, many of them, to recognize is that everybody, certainly all the, all the junior people to them, all their reports, are very, very conscious of them, of their behavior, of their decisions, of everything they do. They are very, very tuned into it. And leaders can't afford to forget that. They, they need to realize that the eyes of the organization are, are trained, the senses of the organization are trained on them. Um, and that's where the influence comes from. Now, influence is quite separate from, you know, it's not about making people do things they don't want to do. If you need to do that, you can use your power to do that. But that's not really influence. Influence is about, um, well, I, I think the best way of understanding influence is to read uh, that very famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, by the author, I forget the name. How do we, oh, I have that book and I've forgotten the author's name. <laughs> Very famous. <laughs> I It'll do come have to it. Us. Yeah. yeah. But what struck me about that book, and this is the essence of influence, is that when you read it, when you read the title, you think, great, I'm going to get this book because this will give me the key to getting other people to do what I want them to do. It will allow me to manipulate them and get them to bend to my will. When you read the book, you find that it's actually the antithesis of all of that, because what it focuses on is not other people's behavior. It puts the focus on your behavior. And it gets you to do simple things like pay attention and listen and use people's names and look them in the eye. But the, the, the key aspect of this I think that the magic source, secret source, is in the listening. And, you know, the paradoxical kind of axiom that comes out of this is that if you want to influence other people, you have to open yourself up to be influenced by them. Now, if you can do that, mm -hmm. then you can start to get a flow between the two people. Influence, of course, is all to do with flow and the etymology of the word comes from flow. In fact, I think originally it was used to denote the, the flow of astral power coming from the stars, you know, in astrological terms, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago. So there's this concept of flow. Now you're not, flow needs to be two way in a relationship. You can't have one way flow in a relationship. It has to be two way. So, as I said, if you want to influence people, prepare to be influenced. If you want other people to listen to you, put that to one side and listen to them. That's the key. And this works. This is a very, it's very powerful. It's a well-kept secret. Again, when you put it in these terms, it sounds obvious. But there are so many impediments to actually doing that when you are in a you know a stressful situation in a leadership role that it very often gets forgotten uh, but but that's the key why is that so difficult i think it's difficult because we are well in in, in the mere act of communicating with someone how how much time do we spend thinking about what we're going to say next how much effort do we put into trying to change the other person's point of view so that they agree with us mm -hmm. and that takes quite a lot of energy um, but we're so practiced at doing exactly that and I, I, I think the education system doesn't help because our education system is very intellectually based and is a, about science right and wrong discrimination analysis and you know if I'm right I'm right 
That's that's the problem. But there's another level to operate at where, you know, rights and wrongs don't really come into it so much. And that's that's the level of, of communication. It, it got me thinking while you were talking uh, about listening to other people and uh, especially the Time magazine example where suddenly a lot of people were reading Time uh, after the person walked around for a while with it. Um, it, it got me thinking of an organization's uh, mission and vis- uh, visions and values as well, that if you want to influence people, uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but if you want to influence people, you have to show and live those values as well. Yes. You can't yes. Be forcing them on others and then doing something completely different. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, and it's the same for parents. Exactly the same for parents. Um, you have to live them first. And then, and then people see them in operation. They see the benefits of them and they will adopt them. And, and that's, that's a much more powerful way of learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, if you try and inculcate behaviors and values and mores um, into people, inject them into their heads, uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I had an example <clears throat> years ago um, in, working for an organization when um, the uh, SARS outbreak occurred here in Toronto and Vancouver and you know Hong Kong and a few other places. The organization I was with at the time said, you know, nobody's traveling. You know, those that can work at home can work at home. We'll split key teams up to work in different locations, et cetera, et cetera, um, which we all thought was great. You know, they the chances of us getting sick was really low. Uh, but what we found out during that entire thing is that the uh, people in the C-suite were traveling all over the place, including the hot, some of the hotspots. Yeah. And I have to admit, I lost some respect for them at that time. They weren't following their own rules. They weren't showing the value they thought they were portraying you know, to, to staff. Well, this, this is exactly what's happened to our government at the moment. Uh, they they clearly broke the rules, uh, the COVID lockdown rules, and they've been fined by the police. Um, they're not resigning over it. So we have a, a government and a leadership that says one thing and does another. Mm-hmm. And no, it doesn't, you know, without without judging them, it simply doesn't create, oh, it destroys respect. It destroys respect and trust. <clears throat> and it's the antithesis of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we've only got uh, about eight minutes left in our, our uh, show here, but there's another topic I wanted to touch on um, that you bring up, and it's upside down leadership. Now, when I think of leadership, and I think most people do. You think of you know a, a hierarchical triangle, let's say, or a totem pole, or something, and the leaders at the very top. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and on, on, along with that paradigm goes the the notion that the the, the staff, the workers, are there to support the the management in their attainment of goals, objectives, and, and, and strategies. Um, the reality is it's actually the other way around, or, or, or <laughs> it's more helpful when it is the other way around. Um, and it, just to analyze this a bit, a bit more deeply, that this notion that it's the junior people that are serving the, the senior people um, it is actually... Um, completely fallacious. It's not possible to do that. Um, It's the other way around. If you go into a restaurant and you get served by a waiter, you might think that they, that the waiter is, is a, uh, you know, in in the grand scheme of things that the the waiter is junior to you. Um, But in fact, in terms of service, they are more, they are better versed in the art of serving than you will be. So it's always the greater that serves the lesser, never the other way around. It cannot be the other way around. If you were served at the table by someone that was 
less good at serving than you were, you'd probably have to say something to say about it. Mm. So how does that work in an organization? It means that the most senior people are serving those, I don't like the word beneath, but we'll, we'll use it anyway, in the hierarchy. Um, therefore, you know, a part of service is support. So if you use the word support, you can actually invert the pyramid and have the C-suite supporting the senior managers, supporting the middle managers, supporting everybody else, because that's what they're there to do. And they are there, as we mentioned before, to create an environment in which everyone can excel. Now, it's the leadership's job to create that environment. And that is a service function. It's not servile. It's nothing to do with servility. It's a service function. And, you know, again, this is not a new concept. Um, servant, leadership to, servant leadership has been uh, around as a, an idea for, for many, many years. But it works. And it's important that um, enlightened leadership adopt that um, for, for, for best results. Well, I, I remember hearing from uh, one person I, I really uh, uh, admired, and they said, you know, if uh, as a, uh, you know, they were a director, as a director, you know, if I can make everybody else successful, then I'm making myself look good. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's, that's the right way of looking at it. Uh, but again, it's one of those things, it's very obvious when you put it in these terms, but when push comes to shove in, you know, in a stressful organizational situation, um, it can be one of the first thing that goes out of the window. It can be. So mm -hmm. leaders have to be quite strong and resilient and maintain the right, this right approach, regardless of the circumstances that they're in. So there has to be a degree of isolation. Oh, that's probably the wrong word, but, but, um, uh, resilience, that's the word, a degree of resilience to what is going on around you. Because the fundamental principle is that the leader needs to lead from themselves, from that inner world of thinking, feeling, and perception, and not be constantly swayed by what's going on around them. I, we've only got uh, about uh, three three minutes left. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Anything that uh, maybe we didn't touch on that's in uh, your book, The Broken CEO? Um, I think I, I think coming back to we have touched upon this the rest thing. I think that's that's a that's a key element. I've I found over the years of of, uh, of coaching leaders that the one thing that has more impact than anything else long term is the discipline of getting good quality conscious rest regularly every single day of the of the year if people can do that which requires a degree of discipline because you're breaking patterns of behavior that have been around for a long time if you can do that um you can make the business of transforming yourself into a, in, into a proper leader that much easier and quicker. And you can do that at any time, anywhere, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, just, just, just to think in terms of interrupting the cycle of activity to take a rest and to, allow the mental and the emotional uh, mechanisms to fall quiet for a bit. That's a very powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah, I, I know I like to take a rest throughout the workday as well, even if it's just for a quick five minutes, I just walk out the door and you know the dog is always happy to want to play or something. For five minutes, literally the world shuts off. Yes. Play with him for five minutes and come back and I feel completely fantastic. You know, like, yes. Okay, I'm fresh. Let's go. That's right. We'll tackle that problem um, or whatever. If you can't do that, there's another practice that, that is very powerful, and that is to take three long, deep breaths. Because that represents an interruption. 
And you will inevitably find yourself, if you've not done this before, thinking of all kinds of reasons why you don't have time to do it. (laughs) Which takes longer than those three breaths. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So that's something you can do. Going outside, what what I love doing is listening to the birdsong at this time of year. There is so much birdsong. It's quite extraordinary. Um, And coming back to dogs, very interesting uh, quote from, I, I don't know who it was, but he said, I want to be the person my dog thinks I am. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. I know. <laughs> on, on that note, Chris, we've come to the end of our show. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. And congratulations again on the book, The Broken CEO. Um, as you can tell, if you're watching this on uh, YouTube, there were a lot of good points that Chris makes because there's – Lots of tabs here you can see. So thank, thank you very you so much, much, Alex. Uh, I, I enjoyed you. our chat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Good. And to everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.